Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy. And as always, here with Managing Editor and all-round good guy, Richard Hill. Look, I'm down here in Sydney trying to be an all-round good guy as best I can, but it's the, the weather's just dreary. We, we're oh. about to head into another week of rain. Oh, so, yeah. uh, so, you know, batten down the hatches and pull up the umbrellas and <laughs> all that sort of stuff. But, uh, but anyway, great. we've got a really, really interesting guy. I, I'm just so fascinated that we come across people uh, and I think, oh, gee, I've never heard of those people, but then they've never heard of me. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's just our lack, you know, that, our lack of being able to pay attention. And it's what's so wonderful about the podcast. So, yeah, about our fabulous guest today. Absolutely. So we're going to talk to a Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. Thomas Verney. Now, he's the author of eight books, no, no less, wow. uh, including The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, which was published in 27 countries. So no doubt. Some people out there have heard of this one um, because it made quite a splash and uh, we'll talk to him about that. And uh, he's taught at uh, Harvard University and, well, a whole swathe of very prestigious places. He's a very learned man. And we are very fortunate to be able to talk to him today about his new book, which is The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness and Our Bodies. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to meeting uh, somebody uh, who's, who's got this, this great history and this wonderful new new bits of information. And, of course, don't forget, everybody, uh, we've got our book out. Uh, That's so right. The, the Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. We're there and uh, we really want you to jump in and, and enjoy all the stuff we've done there. You'll find that all on the website. And, uh, and of course, if you love what we're doing uh, with the podcast, don't forget, and you want to know a lot more stuff, then of course, you can always uh, become a member of the Science of Psychotherapy Academy at thescienceofpsychotherapy.net. There's the promo stuff. Off we go, I think, over, over now to uh, Dr. Thomas Verney over from uh, Canada, who is holidaying in Florida. Dr. Verney, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's so great to see you. Thank you. Great to be here. And Richard here, uh, uh, the... the, the uh, terrible duo that we are, but um, your book was brought to our attention. I mean, it was uh, released towards the end of last year, but uh, and it's not your only book, of course, there's been a number of others, and it's just wonderful. So we had to talk to you, and so now we've got you. Yeah, so maybe we can start off with just a bit of an introduction. Uh, let our listeners know um, sort of a bit of your background. Sure. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I, I guess... I guess we could go back to when I was 13 years old and uh, I was uh, I was staying in Vienna and um, one of the first books that I read in German when I was almost unable to read German, I just had sort of a Czech German dictionary in my hand and I came across this book by, by Freud and it was called The Interpretation of Dreams. Uh. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I, I knew I knew that Freud was important. Like I didn't I, I didn't know who he was or whatever, but I had enough education to know that Freud was important and that I should read it. So I started reading it, and I became totally fascinated by 
the way he sort of explored the unconscious. And so it was then and there that I made up my mind that I would become a psychiatrist. And then eventually, a few years later, we ended up in Toronto, Canada. I went to medical school in Toronto. And fortunately or unfortunately, uh, depending how you look at it, we had we had a lot of professors, medical doctors, professors uh, who were sort who went sort of through the Second World War, and they were sort of pretty tough fellows. They did not have much liking for psychiatry, and the general impression that I got from these doctors who used to be colonels and majors and God knows what in the Canadian army uh, was that psychiatrists spent all their time um, listening to rich ladies complaining about their dachshunds. Yes. <laughs> so that was not terribly appealing. Like I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, <laughs> doing that. And so then and there, I made up my mind. I, I changed courses, and I thought I would like to become an obstetrician. Ah. And so I went into obstetrics for a little while, but I absolutely hated the way obstetricians treated pregnant women. And particularly when they were giving births, they would yell at them, push. Right push, push. And then there was so much, so much violence and so much blood. The whole scene just was not to my liking. And so then I thought, well, I had an opportunity to work in a psychiatric hospital during the summer. So I thought, well, this is sort of my last chance. Let's see if perhaps psychiatry, you know, beckons me back. And so I went to the psychiatric hospital in Upper New York State, which was one of those old-time large hospitals, 5,000 patients, about 25 doctors. Um, and so I was assigned to the emergency department where people first came in. And, you know, they were pretty, you know, psychotic, like they were all, you know, hearing voices and being delusional and hallucinating all that kind of stuff. And so the only thing I really knew about psychiatry was that you took a history and you asked about family and you asked about dreams, of course, because I still remembered Freud. So I had a tiny little office and I started seeing people. And within a few days, the word got around that there's actually a psychiatrist here who talks to people. Wow. <laughs> So there would be these long lineups in front of my office, people trying to see me and talk to me. And I saw very, very, very quickly within a few weeks that my patients were just being discharged left and right, whereas mm -hmm. the other patients of the other doctors were just getting sicker and sicker. So, so Yeah, beautiful. So, you know, then I could see that it wasn't just rich old ladies, you know, looking after their favorite dogs and cats, uh, but actually you could do some real important work. So that's when I went into psychiatry. I was sort of analy analytically oriented. I was always interested in insight. I was always interested 
in past uh, family histories. I was interested in the roots of the problem. I was not interested in just treating the problem, which was becoming more and more popular. And of course, today, it's, it's the thing that most psychiatrists do. Uh, I was interested in trying to get down to the very beginning, to the roots of the problem. And so one day, discussing a dream with a young man, um, he suddenly started crying like a little baby. Hmm. And he did that for about 10 minutes. I did not interrupt him. I let him cry for about 10 minutes. And he seemed to be in an altered state of consciousness. And then he came out of it. And I asked him what had what did just happen. And he said, well, I had just found myself as a little baby in a crib. And I was crying for my mother. And then being a somewhat skeptical young lawyer, he said, you know, there's something wrong with this picture. Because I've actually seen photographs of myself as a baby. And they were always taken in a blue crib. And this script here now was just was white. So I told him to go and talk to his mother. He was still a young man. His family was still alive. And he came back the following week and he said, you know, this is amazing. But it seems that the first three months of my life, my parents did not have enough money to buy my own crib. Uh, I lived in a, I slept in a borrowed crib. The borrowed crib was from a neighbor and it was white. And it was only three months later that my parents bought me the blue crib, which all the pictures are taken from. So that was a bit of a head scratcher. Um, you know, I, I, I went to the University of Toronto, which is a very good school, uh, followed up by Harvard University in Boston, which is you know, one of the best in the world. And I was always taught that children before the age of two don't remember anything. So how could this be possible? And so as time went on, I heard more and more stories like that. And so I began to wonder, you know, whether sort of the accepted wisdom, in quotation marks, uh, the accepted wisdom that was being taught in academia was, was wrong. And so then what happened next was, that I wrote a paper, and it was called The Psychic Life of the Unborn Child. And I got to present it at a Fifth International Congress on Psychosomatic Obstetrics and Gynecology in Rome. And at that convention, I was Ronnie Lang, and many of the leading lights of psychiatry and obstetrics from all over the world. There were five, 600 people there. It was an amazing crowd. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I was a total unknown. Uh, I was incredibly lucky to have my paper accepted. Not only was it accepted, but it was put on the best morning of the whole convention. So, well, I got 20 minutes, you know, not a lot of time, but enough to sort of put forth my ideas, which essentially were that children before uh, the age of two can remember their births and perhaps even pre-births. And then there was this incredible electrical excitement in the crowd when I presented my paper. And it was obvious that it had hit 
a receptive cord in people. Mm. Like people were electrified. And so when I saw that, I said at the end of my 20-minute talk, I said, if anyone here would like to continue talking about this, come up to my room at five o'clock and we'll talk some more. And so at five o'clock, Ronnie Lang and many of the others came to my room. And once again, it was like the mental hospital. There was this long lineup in front of my room, you know, and people were trying to get in and we were talking. Oh, it was it was great fun. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. So then I saw that here was something that people are really, really interested in. And so that's when I started writing my book, which eventually three years later was published as The Secret Life of the Unborn Child. And that was published by Simon and Schuster, and that that changed my life. And I'm told by many many people that it changed their lives too. And that book has now been published in 27 countries, mm, uh, and it's 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 still it's still selling. <laughs> uh, it's people are still writing me about it. So it has been a wonderful wonderful experience. But and I'm coming now to the present. <laughs> but I was always mystified um, as to how it is that children, even before the age of six months after conception, which is sort of when you can say that uh, the beginnings of the brain are, the brain as we know it sort of uh, are, are formed. How can, how can children before the age of six months before the end of the second trimester, remember anything. How is this possible? And I've always been scientifically oriented. And um, I was wondering, you know, is there a scientific explanation for this? Mm. And it has always, you know, it has always bothered me that I did not have an answer to this question. And then seven years ago, seven years ago, I read this account of a Frenchman, 44-year-old Frenchman, who went to see his doctor because he had some weakness in his left leg. And when they did very thorough lab tests and x-rays and God knows what, uh, they found out that he had virtually no brain. He had a thin crust of cortical tissue and the rest of his skull was filled with fluid cerebrovascular fluid, mm. uh, and medical doctors call it hydrocephalus, water on the brain. Now, this was a 44-year-old married man, two children, and working as a civil servant. How is this possible? But we know it is. <laughs> it's yeah. there, right? It's happening. Uh, you can't deny it. So that's when I started looking into the literature and to my surprise, I found that actually there was quite a bit of literature on children having many great part of their brain removed because of uh, epilepsy or brain tumors, and they continued to function normally. And the same as adults. There are quite a number of fantastic, totally verified, totally uh, supported, evidence-based uh, studies done on these people, and not all of them are normal, but the great majority of them 
act and continue to think and behave normally. So when I saw that, I thought to myself, there has to be a backup system. If there is no brain and the person is still brainy, the person still has a mind, then where, where is this mind coming from? Where is it anchored? And so that's when I thought that it must be below the neck in the rest of the body. And so that's what led me then to the, to the book that you have in front of you now, or somewhere in your library, <laughs> called, uh, called The Embodied Mind. So, yeah. And that beautiful uh, extension, understanding the mysteries of cellular memory, consciousness, and our bodies. And uh, it's so listening to that story and that, that run through and that, that history uh, as, as we come up, uh, talking about people with the huge um, brain damage, I s- spent some time uh, in friendship with a chap who I think he became, he was called the Jigsaw Man, I'm not sure, but he was uh, in yeah. uh, the, the war in Argentina. He was one of the British soldiers and had half his his, yes. his brain was removed. Yes. And uh, he came and anyway, it was great. We He had a small problem with some motor movements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sure. fundamentally. Yeah. And, and this idea, uh, my mentor, uh, Ernest Rossi, uh, he was uh, uh, the student of Milton Erickson, uh, oh, yes. who was another psychiatrist who, yes. was, who was exploring what you were discovering, yes. that actually yes. there were human beings there. So yes. I'm sort of connected into that framework. And I've, I've, I, I've actually done a lot of work uh, in reviewing and um, uh, I was charged with that, the 16 volumes of Ericsson, so I know a lot of the stories. So, so when you say those things, I go, oh, wow, what, this is the amazement. And it kind of brings us around to also our book of saying, there is a lot we need to know about. Yes. Uh, we need to know about. So just that little sort of recap of my reactions there. Sorry, Matt, I just, because no. there were so many things fine. that. Fine, fine. I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if if you could give us a sort of a, a, a large perspective view of like this whole body consciousness, this, the, the, the idea of you know cellular and, and embodied consciousness. Are you able to sort of give us the, the big picture? Well, um, the big picture, um, essentially, essentially, what scientists have. Well, there are quite a few directions in which we can go here because it is a complex subject. Mm. Um, one of the things that scientists have not recognized sufficiently is the incredible intelligence of our cells, the smallest units in our bodies. And they have failed to recognize the fact that cells in the rest of our bodies are not that different from neurons. Mm -hmm. Scientists have focused for many, many years, and certainly the last 200 years, on the brain and the neurons, you know, once the neurons were discovered, uh, it has been totally sort of corticocentric. The brain, the brain, the brain. A couple of years ago, even in the United States, I think uh, it was declared 
the century of the brain or the that's, year of the that's brain. That's right, the, the, the 90s, you know, yeah, the decade of yeah, the brain, that's yeah, right. Some, Bush, yeah, Bush you know, did that. something like that. And, and I think that that also sort of goes with our culture because uh, I'm not an anthropologist or a sociologist, but you and I know that our culture for the last 2,000 years, 5,000 years, whatever, you know, has been incredibly patriarchal which means that it has been hierarchical. And hierarchical means that the head is at the top and mm. the feet are at the bottom and sort of everything in between really doesn't matter very much. You know, we talk about the head of state or getting a head mm. or, you know, who, who, who heads this company, you know, heading into the wind, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all about the head. Uh, and so... It is not surprising that medicine and pharmacological companies, and we may come to that later, um, have focused all their attention on the head instead of the rest of the body. And particularly, you know, not only what goes on in the cells, and I want to talk about that a little bit, but also particularly the organs of the heart and the gut, which are incredibly important. So you know, not recognizing the connections and putting all your values and all your focus in research and treatment on the head, whether it's Alzheimer's or whether it's mental health that I'm sure, Richard, you would be interested in. Um, it's, it's all about, you know, let's try, let's try to find something that is going to be an antidepressant that is going to increase your serotonin in the brain. But actually, most of the serotonin is produced in the gut. It's not produced in the brain. And many of the antidepressants, which again, most psychiatrists, neurologists, pharmacologists don't recognize, many of the antidepressants actually work on the gut bacteria and have their effect because their effect on gut bacteria, which then will affect the brain. So they really have it sort of upside down. Uh, instead of looking at everything from top down, what I'm trying to do is look at it from the bottom up and that way create a more balanced approach to health. I'm not saying that it should be all bottom up, but it certainly is wrong to consider it all top down. Well, you, you'll be very pleased with um, with us because we're exactly uh, been following and learning and working through that. And we've done a Great. lot of that in our in our, our book, our new book. We're trying to you know make it sort of uh, accessible. Yes. But, but but one of the things that I uh, Ernie Rossi uh, would talk about, and we we spoke yes. a lot because he was also one of the first to to really talk about the psychobiology of of, yes. of our functions. And he talked about state-dependent memory learning and behaviour and activity-dependent memory learning behaviour. Now, this is when we're getting down into to cellular states and biochemical milieus and this sort of, this sort of aspect. Is this where um, we can start talking about the cells and uh, how they uh, create a, a states of being that enable us, that are 
reflective of memories, although it's not like those those autobiographical pictorial memories so much, but it's a different type of frame of memory. Is yes, Am I on the right yes. track there? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, but again, you know, from a scientific standpoint, you know, I'm interested, how do the cells do this? You know, like... Mm. It's not enough for me to say, yes, you know, cells contain memory. So I'm also interested in trying to find out how does that work? And so I've been looking, for example, at the cellular membrane, and I've been looking at the DNA, which now scientists have been able to put an incredible amount of data into living cell DNAs. Mm so that they act like little computers and um, and even more so like microchips. And so uh, it, it's really, really interesting how much data, how much information each cell can contain. And of course, the other thing that's important is that cells form networks and it is their networking it's the cells working together that is so incredibly powerful. It, it's just like connecting a lot of computers. Instead of having a single computer, uh, if you really want to have you know tremendous amount of memory, uh, you connect several computers. And so it's the same thing that's happening in our body. So all of these cells are connected, and then they are connected to the tissues, like the heart, and the gut, as I've said, and one of the most important avenues for connecting the brain to the heart, to the gut, is the vagus nerve. And I'm sure you know that. Mm -hmm. And so that is an incredibly important avenue for communication. And signals are being sent both ways, from the brain down to the heart and the gut, and then up from the gut to the heart and the brain. So again, it's something that our listeners need to keep in mind that there is this, you know, bidirectional communication. It's not unidirectional. It's not just the vagus nerve from the brain down to the rest of the body. It's also in the opposite direction. Mm. You're reminding me of a yes. guest we had recently, Dr. John Leaf. And uh, he has written a book about the secret life. What is it? The, the secret language of cells. Okay. And um, and he, it was just amazing listening to him about the uh -huh. collective wisdom yes. of, of cells and how they communicate and the myriad ways that they communicate. Yes. And, you know, he, he picked a few examples like, um, like killer T cells sort of taking the lead when it comes to uh, an immune response in uh -huh. uh, taking a lead in also instructing uh, neurons and, mm -hmm. and, in ways, in communication um, networks that we hadn't really known about before. And so this, yeah, the secret language, it sounds like the secret life <laughs> that you yes, were writing about. Yes, yes. Um, it's truly incredible, um, the, the, the autonomy that the cellular networks seem to have. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I guess, I guess that more and more scientists mm -hmm. are going to wake up to this. Hmm. And uh, that's all for the good of mankind. Yes, we've we often we've been trying we're, at the moment. We're now campaigning with uh, our book called "The Science of Psychotherapy," and our 
project. Yes. And we're yes. trying to say to people that science has got hijacked, that word. Yes. It's, been, it's been hijacked to be reductionism and um, yes. a mechanism. And instead of being the investigation of what is, uh, and uh, it's exactly as you say, if, if science gets a hold of something, they say, oh, we are now defining what is. And one of the examples you gave, which is so perfect, is that the brain is the thing that does all the, is, yes. is the center of everything. It does all, yes. And, all then the it, and it creates this bias uh, uh, and leaves you away from this fascination. And so just getting back, I just wanted to add that in go and circle back to this, this cellular uh, interaction, this, this cellular um, uh, discussion and memory framework. Could you expand a little bit more on the way you describe that and what you talk about in the book in the context of those cells? Well, you know, one, one of the interesting facets of this is, of course, um, when you have, um, w- when people donate their hearts and you have, you, like just a c- couple of weeks ago in the United States, uh, there was a, a pig's heart was placed into a person, right? Mm. So we have this heart transplantation, uh, but people don't realize that it, the heart is not just a pump, mm. but it, it's tissues, right? It's a living organ. And as a living organ made up of tissues, which are made up of cells, uh, it is transferring memory from those cells into in, into the the person who is accepting the heart. So, what you have here, and there are quite a number of accounts of this, is that with heart transplantation, you are also transplanting personality, or at least some aspects of personality, mm. and uh, so. I have a chapter on that in my book, and um, there are many, many reports that I reference uh, where you have people totally changing their personality. A woman who who never loved, who who, who would who was a vegetarian, suddenly loves meat, and it seems that the heart that she got from a young man, uh, he he only ate meat and hated veggies. You know that that kind of personality change uh, has been reported over and over and over again. And yet, and well, okay. And I was speaking to a uh, medical doctor in California the other day uh, who was doing heart transplants. And I said, do you ever mention to your patients that there might be the possibility of a change in personality? Never, Mm. never. We don't talk about that. Yes, I I have another uh, actually colleague in in California, a heart surgeon, who's quite the opposite. He says, um, and he's doing quite a lot of things. He doesn't necessarily warn them as a as a likelihood, but he's been collecting uh, stories. uh, Oh, really? This 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 stuff, really, really interesting stuff. We. Oh, I would like you to put me in touch with that man if you could. I will. It's been a few years since uh, since I've seen him, but I'm sure I'm. I'll be able to. Okay. No, I would really, really appreciate that. That would be a really important contact for me. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, coming back to your question about cellular intelligence and cellular memory, uh, these cells contain memories. Uh, We don't know what kinds of memories they contain. It's too early uh, at this point 
to say definitely what they contain. But obviously, as a, as a tissue with millions and millions of cells working together, there obviously is here a network of memories which is being transferred. So mm -hmm. I think that we ought to be very, very careful before we start transplanting pig's hearts to people because God knows what kind of personality they will develop. <laughs> yes, one of the things that I've um, read quite a bit about is dream states for people that have yes. had um, a heart transplants and they will, you know, have dream, they'll seem to have had memories of the, the person that they've had got the heart from. Um, and I don't know, is that because in a sleep state, in a subconscious state, they're more receptive? Oh, I think I think that's a very important point that you're raising. Mm. Uh, you know, people always say, "Well, how come not everybody has uh, has changes in their personality or does not receive dreams from the donor?" Well, exactly. You you put your finger on it. It is because some people are more receptive than others. Mm. You know, I mean, as a psychiatrist who has worked for many many years uh, with patients. Um, I have found that there are huge differences in terms of how some patients can work uh, and gain insight and can work with dreams and others who are just not capable. You know, I, I will say to them, well, what do you think this means? I don't know. You tell me. You are the psychiatrist. That's not what you want to hear. Is That's the way. Yeah. I mean, there's this thing of of, of the dream, uh, the dream sort of state, the dream capacity of of this effort of the the, the conscious mind or, the, or mm -hmm. our, our upper regions, upper cognitive, to yeah. try and make sense of the information that's coming to it. I mean, we get sort of conscious dreaming and daydreams yes. in, in confabulation in older people. Yes. Yes. And this idea of um, uh, cells which have developed over time because obviously they alter yes. through experience, then contributing states, biochemical states and yes. uh, ionic uh, variations. Yeah. Yes. And it's that interpretation. And uh, I sometimes look at those people who who don't uh, are aren't able to recall their dreams or don't mm -hmm. look for the metaphors mm -hmm. it's just a it's that's just a cognitive uh, yes. sort of uh, a cortical process of, of diminished cortical process and then they're missing the joys of life they're missing they're missing the great mysteries of uh, you know what's your liver talking to you you know <laughs> absolutely <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely yes yes yeah and people are so different you know and and some people have a certain talent. It, it's almost like having a talent for painting or a talent for, you know, working with your hands. Some people have a talent for insight. They are introspective and others are not. Mm, mm. Oh, excellent. Yeah, it's, the, that, that's just, uh, and this is again what we're so interested in and what we're loving about, uh, you know, the work you're, you're doing it's taking things from the human perspective first. There's there's a yes. humanism in here first that we seek to understand and mm. um, and embellish and perhaps have a uh, what I call uh, you know I use that psychotherapeutic term attunement. You know, have a yes. deeper attunement to the uh, to the to the other. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, that's true. And you know, again, speaking of attunement, the heart has got this incredible incredible energetic outpouring around it. 
we often refer to people perhaps having an aura, right? But there's this magnetic field that the heart produces, oh. which is something like 5,000 times stronger than the magnetic field that the brain produces. Mm, and yeah. so very, you know, often wow. when people say, you know, I felt I fell in love with her the first time I saw her or him, you know, whatever. Um, it's usually, I would say, scientifically, uh, it's because they are on the same wavelengths. Somehow mm. their hearts connected with each other. And so energetically, they connected. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you do psychotherapy, right? Yes, we in principle, yeah, we call it yeah. that. Yeah. Okay, so I think the same thing applies, you know, in psychotherapy. I'm sure that you have had the experience that with some people, you almost click right away. And with others, no matter how hard you try, it's just not happening. Yeah. And uh, one of the other aspects of that that we've learned is that, that so that electromagnetic um, field of the heart can yes. entrain brainwave activity. And so the dominant heart, um, whatever it is, this field mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. can, can align brainwave activity. So you can have a, a dominant person in the room purely from what's radiating from their heart, mm -hmm. which is just fascinating. Right, right, right. Well, I think it's important to meet people where they are instead of trying to change them. Mm. And so I think it's important for people practicing psychotherapy, psychiatry, counseling, whatever, uh, to accurately sort of assess where that person is and mm. then try to adjust your therapy to where they are instead of where you are. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the things that I wanted to touch on was um, in terms of generational trauma, which you you yes. mentioned. Yes. Can we just yes. talk about what what is going on there in terms of the transmission of generational trauma? Well, um, some of that is pretty mysterious, um, but at least some of it can be explained um, in terms of, of the propositions that I put forward in my book. Um, there is a lot of research that shows that you can transfer stress, let's say, from fathers or mothers to their children and even into second generations. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's wonderful, wonderful research on stressed fathers, for example, uh, who then, they were stressed before they conceived a child. And then that child, particularly if the child is male, grows up and is stressed, and his child will also show effects of stress. Uh, and the same thing, very similar, happens with mothers. Mm. So we know that stress can be um, passed down through generations. Mm. I think that in addition to stress, probably other experiences of the parents are passed down through generations. And I will just give you an example. Um, I heard you know in in canada we have had these um we have had these schools 
uh, where uh, indigenous people were being taken in, you know, as, as children, uh, residential schools, and they were terribly mistreated. Uh, so one of these children grew up, married, and then when his daughter was about five or six years old, she started having terrible nightmares. And he asked her what they were, and she wouldn't tell him. And then when she reached about the age of 12, suddenly one day she came out and told him what it was. And she was having this dream of a man all dressed in black and with a black mask coming into the room where she slept and picking her up and taking her away and then doing something to her. So. It turns out that the father, who never told his daughter about his experiences in residential school, when he was six years old and he was sleeping with the rest of the boys in the dormitory, every night, one of the priests, dressed all in black, with a black mask, came in and picked up one of the children, including him once in a while, and sexually abused them. He never told his daughter. Oh, that's a remarkably um, accurate memory that's transferred there. Yes, it's remarkably accurate. And I don't think, uh, you know, the majority of uh, memories are like that. But you could, mm. uh, but I think that you could easily have a phobia, for example, uh, mm. that could be tra transmitted. You know, people who are afraid of water or, or blackness, for example, in this case, you know, um, perhaps a person in black might scare them and they would have no idea why. So I think that probably many phobias, anxieties, uh, even perhaps a depressive personality uh, might originate uh, with parental experiences. Mm. And, and we've got to remember that, uh, that when a, a child is in utero, a baby is in utero, there are actually three sets of uh, DNA functioning in the system. There's the mother's, there's the child's, and then, of course, the child has already made the zygotes, uh, you know, yeah. the ova for, for yeah. the future. It's, yeah. a, it's an extraordinary. So just to think, even going back, and we know, you know, epigenetic um, mm -hmm. uh, inheritance can, can yes. survive over several generations, you know, perhaps exactly. five, six, seven generations. Exactly, and, yes. And the lack of attention to this by yes. the science because it's too busy or it's mm -hmm. too protective? Is, is it protective of itself? These sorts of I, things curious to us. Yeah, I, I don't know whether it's protective. Uh, it's just kind of tradition-oriented, you know. It, mm. it seems that most scientists, once they graduate, they continue to practice and believe what they were taught in graduate school at university. Mm. And they are hesitant, reluctant uh, to make a leap into something new. Right. So, so I wonder in, if, if you're speaking of these things in a more collective culture, yes, where the links between the past and the present, you know, are, are a lot stronger in the culture, yes. that this yes. may not be so surprising. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right, and I, and I'm sure that that would that would also be relevant to Australia and uh, the collective historical trauma that your Aboriginal people carry. Mm. 
Yeah. And it's something that we're the, that we're grasping to understand. Uh, I think as a, a, as we have this interesting push me pull you thing going on in in Western culture at the moment. Yes. I'm, I, I'm not sure about others because I'm not there so much. But the desire to change and the pressure mm-hmm. to change and and repair um, things that were uh, imbalanced or uh, unfair, and actually this equal pull and pressure for things to remain the same. Yes. Uh, I think yes. this is a fairly, you know, when you go down to cells, this is actually one of the things that we know cells do fight about in themselves. Yes, homeostasis. Yeah, this is a general sort of a fundamental principle of, of being. But when we bring yes. it into culture, mm-hmm. it starts to get a lot more complex. Yeah, in culture it becomes resistance to change. Yes, right. Yes. Mm. Yeah. And of course, you know, just one more thing in terms of the historical and collective trauma that we just talked about. Just think of the tremendous trauma that people in Ukraine are experiencing right oh, now. Yes, yes. Right? And think of their children and their children's children. I mean, this is going to be a, a huge problem because millions and millions of people are being affected. So God knows what the world is going to look like, you know, like 20 years from now, mm-hmm. when the children of the adults now uh, start growing up and mm-hmm. how they will be traumatized, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. this, is very much a, this is very much a global problem right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we yeah. can look on the cellular level, so mm-hmm. on different levels, certainly here a, socio, a social uh, upheaval, there we have uh, emotional upheaval, trauma upheaval. We've had uh, a dietary upheaval uh, yes. you know, over the last things. We've had uh, uh, movement and activity um, uh, upheaval by the increasing sedentary nature that we have. Right. And then, of course, this 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 hugely peculiar one of of uh, separation from from uh, from people you're talking to through this through these electronic uh, electronic right. frameworks. There's a, this. It, it, I mean, this. I'm just sitting here wondering whether I should be excited about the future or just terrified. It's, but it certainly will be interesting. Well, speaking of that, if I may, just for a moment, um, optimism is really, really important. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the wonderful things about the science of epigenics uh, is that we know that we are all a work in progress. Everything is in flux. Mm-hmm. And so this is both to our benefit and of course, you know, also to our destruction. But in terms of benefit, how you think, how you think about yourself influences every cell in your body. It, influ- it influences the genes because in epigenetics, we are not talking about changing the genes. We are talking about how we change the activity of the genes. So we turn them on or we turn them off. I'm sure you know that. Mm-hmm. So um, it's the same thing that's happening now. You know, we have really, really interesting research on optimism and how our thoughts can influence everything around us. Of course, there's the whole there's the whole uh, area of quantum physics, which oh, yeah. shows that you know, the presence of an observer will influence how the experiment proceeds, right? I, I want to tell you about this experiment, this study that was done in New York on some hotel mates. 
because I want to leave on an optimistic note. <laughs> can. Yes, I was dragging us down. It's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so there were these 82 hotel maids uh, in New York and a psychologist from Harvard uh, did a study on them and he divided them uh, she actually, she divided them into two groups, 41 each. And to one group, she said that the work that you're doing actually meets the standards set by um, the United States, um, I don't know, some some health czar, you know, somebody in charge of health in the United States. Um, and it sets the standard for exercise. So actually, your work is like exercise. So I just want you to know that, she said. Hmm. 30 days later, she compared the group, the one that she told, the experimental group and the control group. In the experimental group, the women on the average lost weight. Their blood pressure went down. Their circumference around their abdomen went down. Their heart rate decreased. They were, they were better on five or six different measurements. They did not change what they were doing. They only changed what they thought they were doing. Yes, oh. this, the opportunity and the appropriate circumstances, uh, right. the body will then... When, when given that, it will respond and, and, and it prefers to move in a better direction. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I got to so tell really, yeah. autonomy. All the, ah, beautiful story. Beautiful story. All right. Fantastic. We are sort of running out of time. And uh, I think I was joking with you before we started, Dr. Verney, that we'll have to get you back because we're not going to be able to cover everything. And oh, certainly we didn't. We've just scratched would, the surface. I would, I, would love to, I would love to be back. Ah, great. Fantastic, because I want to ask you a little bit about um, psychopharmacology sure. and a whole bunch of other questions. So, <laughs> Okay. Just a reminder to everybody, it is the embodied mind, understanding the mysteries of cellular memory, consciousness, and our bodies, and we'll put a link in the show notes. Great. So, so for now, um, we'll, we'll bid our fond adieus, but uh, we look forward to the next, the next time in maybe a month or so. It'd be great. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Fantastic. Matt. Thank you so pleasure. much. Thank hey. you. Bye-bye. Oh, my. Talk about not being disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) And, in fact, uh, you know, above my expectations. Yeah. Um, I mean, that opening discussion we had, I mean, that's just a history of uh, of psychiatry. Yeah. And, you know, going back through Europe, uh, you know, over the past 40 years or so. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I I need to brush up on some of these cases that he was talking about with people with, you know, half or nearly no brain and being able to function completely normally. Yeah, the French guy's an extraordinary case, extraordinary case. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And and we we will need to get him back because I've got questions about, uh, like I said, uh, psychopharmacology and there's a whole lot of things about how we treat our body, our cells and, you know, how that modulates our mental life. But Anyway, yeah. no, we'll have very to get important. back. Because the psychopharmacology discussion is a really important one and we need to talk to some psychiatrists about this, people who are, mm-hmm. are right mm-hmm. in the meat of it uh, rather than just having an opinion, uh, you know, like my opinions from an outside point of view. Yeah. So so that'd be great. Yeah, and there's a bunch of other things. So um, I've got a whole bunch of notes here uh, which are uh, fantastic stuff. So anyway, right. we, we've had a good time with, yeah. uh, with uh, Dr. Thomas Verney. 
Let me just remind you, uh, his book is The Embodied Mind, Understanding the Mysteries of Cellular Memory, Consciousness and Our Bodies. Link in the show notes. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for dropping in and joining us here at the Science of Psychotherapy podcast, and we will catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.